The views on this podcast belong uniquely and solely to the mouths from which they emanate. We were going to let the language itself determine its rules. Tell us what the rules were. Tell us what the vocabulary was. We weren't going to impose anything on it. Hi, and welcome to the Weekly Linguist Podcast. I'm Jarrett Allen, and I'm your host. We're not in the radio studio today. We're actually on the road for this week's episode in Scott, Louisiana, which is a small town northwest of Lafayette, uh, often considered the heart of Cajun, Louisiana. Dr. Barry Anselet is Professor Emeritus at the University of Lafayette, where he spent decades studying folklore and Cajun music and culture, and he was an integral part of the work that has been going on for many years to help stem the tide of French language attrition in Louisiana. It is no exaggeration to say that the work of Dr. Anselet and others literally set the stage for much of my own life. For without the organization called Codafil, there would have been no French classes at Brame Junior High School in Alexandria, Louisiana, and without those classes, who knows what I would be doing today. So I'm excited to bring you the first part of our interview with Dr. Barry Anselet. Before we begin, remember that you can check out the show notes at weeklylinguist.com, and you can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at weeklylinguist. Please share, make comments, tell us how we're doing, email us at podcast at weeklylinguist.com. I've recently got some very, very interesting and, and wonderful responses and questions and comments from, from viewers, and I, I enjoy them very much. And I would, uh, I would love it if y'all continue to talk to me and let me know what's going on, ask me questions, what you're thinking, what we can do better. I'm really enjoying the communication that I'm getting and the feedback that I'm getting on this podcast, so thank you all. But without further ado... My interview today with Dr. Barry Anselet. Well, we're here today, this uh, early afternoon, with Dr. Barry Anselet, who Professor Emeritus at the University of Louisiana Lafayette. I just, as I was introducing myself to him, I told him that, to be quite honest, I've, I've heard his name many, many times over the past few years. Hopefully not in vain. Nope, it would never was bad. Dr. Anselet, I guess you know, but I'll t- t- tell you, you know, you're an icon. Huh. In the field, <laughs> and uh, it's an it's an honor to be able to meet you. That and two bucks give me coffee at Starbucks. <laughs> uh, by the way, this house that we're sitting in is spectacularly beautiful. Oh, thank. I just want to. Did you did you build it? No, uh, uh, it was in our, it was in my mother's family, and we uh, it actually was originally between Leonville and Arnaville, and we moved it here. Oh, okay, okay. It was built. Uh, it, we bought it from my grandmother's first cousin. So it's an old house. Oh, then. yeah. Any idea how old it is? Uh, about 1867. Wow. Wow. But it's it's got the little ladder up to the garçonnier on the front porch and everything. It, it, uh, ours, our ladders are in here. This mm-hmm. this used to be the uh, front of the house. That was the back. This was the back. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> it got re- it's a long story, but it mm-hmm. got reoriented when... Uh, when they built the road, it used to face the bayou, Bayou Tesh. And, mm-hmm. uh, so anyway, um, well, good deal. We uh, it didn't look anything like this when we hauled it here. It was be, it was being used for a barn that, when we bought it. Oh wow, 
that makes me even more jealous because <laughs> that's that, that's I've always loved that just that old historic. It, there's a charm to it. There's a there's a charm to it that I've I've always liked. I um, you know, it, it's good to know that not all of the old Cajun homes are on an Acadian village or Vermilionville. You know, yeah, there's right. still some out there. So, well, Doctor Isley, what we wanted to talk to you today was basically about the development of Louisiana French culturally, linguistically, so on and so forth. I think there's some misconceptions out there that people have that oh, you know, really? we can talk about. And um, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. So why don't we just dive right in? Um, I want to start by mentioning you had talked to me about a couple of uh, publications that you're working on. Let's see. Is either the ones you've just finished or working on? Um, That's two of them right there. Oh yeah, dictionary the, of Louisiana French. Let me tell you a, a quick story. You know, Lake the McNeese, our building in at, in McNeese was destroyed. We couldn't come in. We couldn't go in. We couldn't do anything. And I wasn't exiled. And Keegan sent me a message, and he said, "Jared, if you need anything out of the language lab, you need to let me know now. You've, this is your last chance." And I told him, I said, "I don't care about anything. Just go get my dictionary of Louisiana French." <laughs> So, yeah, it's, it's sitting on my desk at, in my office. Now, there's an interesting uh, story about that. Dictionary, you know, uh, when the effort to, uh, I, don't know how, I don't know what verb to use, preserve, regenerate, uh, Louisiana French, uh, revive, uh, began uh, as a result of the, the, the cultural, political um, changes that happened uh, post-World War II, uh, which coincided with quite a few factors. For one thing, you know, it was, the, it was, it was rock and roll, it was protest, it was, you know, mm-hmm. uh, it was the counterculture movement. And our counter, counterculture was, you know, American sort of plastic, nameless culture. That's what we were trying to avoid slipping into. And so the response to that was, well, you know, what do we have? Well, we have this. This is really great. Why wouldn't we preserve this? Why wouldn't we, you know, we try to help this continue? And those things started, you know, as I said, pretty much post-World War II. And uh, uh, when CODAFIL, the Council for the Development of French in Louisiana, was established in 1968, it was it was the state's response to that uh, interest and uh, Codafield did a lot of good, but as we pointed out at the time, and you now remember historically, uh, it it made a lot of curious uh, decisions as well. And one of them was uh, to essentially to replace the native Louisiana French with school French. Um, Jimmy DiMaggio, who's the... the chairman of Codafil at the time uh, was a former congressman and uh, sort of keenly uh, sensitive to um, the threats of accusations of un-Americanism and, and, and language in this country <clears throat> has long been uh, uh, associated with political discussions concerning allegiance and Americanism and <clears throat> go all the way back to Teddy Roosevelt, you know, and 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 the nationalist uh, movements of the turn of the 20th century, even today. Uh, well, you go all the way back to the founding of the country. I mean, uh, it, 
it was presumed that very early on that uh, to be a full participant of the United States of America, you had to speak English. Uh, English was the de facto uh, official language of this experimental thing that America was doing. And uh, I mean, you know, there's a lot of evidence of that um, the systematic attempts to eradicate Native American languages, uh, uh, Spanish, German, Polish, Swedish, Norwegian, <laughs> any Japanese, Chinese, any, any language other than English. So <clears throat> there was that long standing conversation in Louisiana. Uh, uh, it began as early as the purchase in 1803. Well, it was around that time that the Ursulines wrote to the president because they were scared that it was going to be a problem for them being these little bitty French ladies. And, and it turns out it was. Yeah. <laughs> it turns out it was. As early as 1803 with the purchase, uh, you know, between 1803 and 1812 when Louisiana became a state, they had to go through a statehood convention and all that stuff. And, mm-hmm. and it was determined that in order to participate in the statehood convention, you had to speak English. Well, <laughs> that, if in effect, eliminated a lot of potential representatives who might have argued for the, reta- you know, the retaining of the language the preservation of the language, right, uh, right, right. But but they but they weren't allowed to participate in the discussion. You had to, you know, the discussions took place exclusively in English as early as that. Uh-huh. And then, of course, you know, the Civil War and the 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 uh, the economic and agricultural troubles of the eighteen eighties and nineties, and then the the arrival of oil in nineteen hundred and and uh, the flood of nineteen twenty seven, World War One, flood of nineteen twenty seven. All of those things brought pressure to bear on. Uh, the French of Louisiana, French language of Louisiana, mm-hmm. uh, the the Great Depression, all because all the relief efforts were arriving in English, you know, uh, right, right. The draft or the you know service in the in the the army exposed a bunch of people from around here who couldn't even speak English. I mean, what the hell? You know, the the, the powers that be were saying, well, wait, 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 what the hell? You know, what is going on here? We can't have this, and. Uh, the fact that French persisted in South Louisiana actually persisted mostly in, in more rural rather than urban settings was not out of any kind of activism or, or, or even decision or desire to persist. It was, it was just out of neglect. I mean, it was, you know, it hadn't gotten to us yet. Yeah, because <laughs> they weren't, hadn't, yeah. reach, hadn't reached here yet. Right, right. And, uh, when it started reaching here was with, you know, pi- all of those things piling on mm-hmm. 1916, uh, decision to ban French from schools, 1921 rewrite of the constitution that officially banned French as a, as an official language of the state, uh, on and on and on. And then, and then all, all of that was going that way very systematically. And you could see where, you know, parts of South Louisiana that had been virtually, virtually a hundred percent French speaking, uh, it was already starting to dwindle by World War II. Then World War II, for some reason, shifted gears. I'm, I'm not exactly sure why. I mean, some of the GIs went to France, and they, and they felt validated. There was that, but but there had to be more than that because you know it was only a limited number of GIs. This might be a simplistic way of saying it, but what I've what I've read and seen and heard people talk about is this idea that they went. To the war, and they found out there was a bigger world out there. Well, there was that, and a lot of them were in France, and they realized, wait a minute, this language they told us was a problem that caused me to be embarrassed at school 
and punished turns out to be pretty useful here. Uh-huh. Not only not only that it was French, but it was you know the resist early resistance movement in France was in Western France. That's exactly where our ancestors came from. So True. the accent must have been remarkably similar, right? And the vocabulary remarkably right. similar. And so, you know, French-speaking Cajuns in the army would have been able to almost disappear uh, in the countryside because uh, their language wouldn't have stuck out. Even if they, like, you, you, people who would have learned book French, school French, would have stuck out. But these people <laughs> spoke, and all of their references were agricultural and nature and fishing and hunting, and, and that's where they were. They were in the country. So, you know, all of those things conspired to probably give them uh, a, 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 a different sense of a value. the value of the language that they spoke. Mm-hmm. There was that, but I mean, there must have been other, there must have been other things too. I don't know. We don't, I don't know that we figured out what they were, but something happened. There was a change after World War II. Uh, part of it, I think, was. World boom. Part of, well, that part, what? The oil boom affected all of that, didn't it? Well, the oil boom had happened since 1900. I mean, oil okay, boom okay. actually. Well, my dates are off. The oil, oil, oil boom contributed to the problem by bringing in exclusively English. Well, yeah, that's what I mean. It contributed to the problem. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it had. But after World War II, something something shifted. Something caused people to reconsider the value of the language here as well. And I'm not sure what that was. Partly, you know, partly. Counterculture movement, partly, you know, this was the era of beatniks and rock and roll and 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 outlaw country, and mm-hmm. you know, Hank Williams and Elvis Presley, and mm-hmm. and I mean, you know, we, we were fully participating in that because look, at, we had Jerry Lee Lewis and and Fats Domino and a bunch of you know right. major players from right here, so right. we were keenly aware of that uh, radio, <clears throat> the radio, uh, which might have contributed to. The imposition of English. By then, they had figured out that they could have French programming. All they had to do is sit in front of the microphone and speak French instead of English, and, and it worked. And so, what, radio what, programs. Is this around the same time that Lomax does his recordings? Oh, it was, 30, it was the thirties. He was here in the thirties. So he was a little later. Okay. He was here in, in the thirties, which was before World War Two. Okay. okay. Uh, and he was one of the first folklorists. He and his father. We were among the first folklorists to capture uh, a lot of the expressive culture, you know, stories and songs. Right, and, right. That's what I was remembering. Uh, along with uh, along with um, Corinne Saussier and Calvin Claudel and right. and uh, I'll say fourteen before them, uh, right. there were a few who were cap who were who were capturing this expressive culture that was using the French language to express itself. Right. And um, this is one of the things that I became interested in myself. Uh, in the in the seventies, when uh, when I sort of came on the scene, I was interested in you know what were what would have been our books if we had been able to write, you know, uh, we didn't have any we didn't have any very many books. There was a there there was of course a a vibrant uh, Louisiana French literature in the in the eighteenth and nineteenth centuries, but that faded from the scene as the literate Creole French Creole societies. Became convinced that the road to the future was, uh, I mean, all the roadsides were in English. And they, they converted. That conversion was pretty much accomplished by, by the 1920s. But everybody else who continued to speak French, the Cajuns and Creoles and other, you know, 
French people, the Homas, they, they didn't do that out of uh, out of uh, uh, protest. They just did it because that's what they had always done, and nobody came and and made them change. That change was trickling in; it was creeping in, but uh, it hadn't happened yet. And so, so there was a lot of expressive culture left, even by the seventies when I started recording storytellers and singers. I mean, I recorded some astonishing, you know, stories and songs that trace all the way back to France and and Africa through the the Afro Creole connections through the Caribbean. And uh, I was interested in discovering what would what what our imaginaire was like. What 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 would would have been the stories if we had, if we had had a literate culture? And the only way to get to that was to visit people and have them tell you the stories. Now, once that was done, you know, once we, and, and the only way to, the only way to study it, the only way to contemplate it was to, was to capture it, you know, to right. slow it down and fix it so that you could look at it. Uh, orality is, is what happens in real time. And it's interesting and it makes us laugh. Yeah, I can tell you a joke and make you laugh or I can tell you a song and entertain you. But, it, you, you can't study orality per se so much. It's hard because what I just said is already gone. It's ephemeral. It's ephemeral. It's, it's, it's in real time. Right. So, but the but you can study it if you record it. If you do what you're doing right now. Right. You know, if you record it, you and and you capture it, and you and you you know you can you can stop and play it back and listen again, and then you can study it even in more depth. If you write it down, now that step was tricky. That's what I've heard because, especially when it comes to the dictionary, yeah, I've heard that was a, because, a an area of disagreement. Exactly. Well, but it's tricky because to how to represent language, spoken language, faithfully, accurately, you know, for the sake of of considering. The style, the language, the vocabulary, the strategic expressions, all of that. Variation. You, you have to capture it as it actually was said. You can't be reinterpreting it. You know, if somebody says, if somebody says, you can't, you can't transcribe that, je suis allé au bal. That's not going to work. Right, right, right. So we had, to fig- we had to figure out how we were going to represent non-standard uh, uh, variation. And, I mean... You know, the first step is fairly easy. Ri- only write down the words that people actually said. Don't change anything they say. But then, after that, the devil's the devil's in the details, right? It, like how Sue do you, versus sweet. How do you how do you represent pronunciation variation? Right. Like you know, lugaru rugaru, or something like that. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, it it wasn't an automatic thing. It wasn't an easy thing. I mean, take a look. I, I just mentioned J.T. Zobal. Because of the z liaison, a lot of transcribers thought that was jetezobal, e t a i s, the emparfait. Right. right. It's not. Right. Because what that person meant to convey is, I went to the. I'm not. I was at the dance, but I went right. to the dance. Right. So that's j a t z, euphonic z, uh, as a liaison, which which we discovered. Happens in Louisiana, uh, une zoie. Right, right, right. So, 
What, I'll give what, you another example of that real quick. Um, I've noticed that people, even on the covers of CDs, will write um, un autre soir d'ennuyant. D'ennui, yeah. D'ennui. Instead of, because you have that R that is that is becoming a flat and, and, and creating liaison. Right. So it's actually un autre soir ennuyant. And so, but you'll see it written because they're hearing it the wrong way. Right. Well, so, uh, you know, there was, a, there was a pretty wide variety of, of solutions and the way people heard things and the way people decided to resolve uh, represent, representing oral language. And <clears throat> at some point, it occurred to some of us, you know, Mandela Fleur and uh, Shirley Abshire at the time, Richard Guidry, me, uh, a few others, we were going to have to get along. We were going to have to play the same game. We were going to have to use the same rules, or else, or else this was just going to, you know, shotgun willy nilly into right. every direction. So, but that, it was an area of disagreement for you guys. There was a lot of there were a lot of areas of disagreement. Yeah. But what we what we decided, what we eventually decided, was that we had to resolve these disagreements. We had to agree to agree. We had to figure out a way to find a solution that we all felt was viable, and that wasn't all. It wasn't always easy, and it, it produced a lot of arm wrestling contests, and sometimes hair and blood and, and <laughs> would fly. But but we figured it out, and you know there were a lot of really uh, strong personalities around that table. Uh, you know, and I I admit to being one of them. Mm-hmm. Like for example, it took me, and 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 what we all agreed was that we were going to let the language as it really was used, as it was documented you know it from recordings and transcriptions we were going to let the language itself determine its rules tell us what the rules were right tell us what the vocabulary was right. we weren't going to impose anything on it so uh uh we would listen to the, it took me for example uh a couple of years to convince shirley abshire that the u from tu can elide and it does elide in front of ta fin, ta chette, t'oubli, ta Oh, yeah, yeah. It does. I mean, it routinely, oh, yeah. it, it routinely resides. Mm-hmm. And what we discovered was if you go to, if you, have, if you have a large enough stock of recordings of native speakers who speak well, uh, who speak this version well, you can you can you can trust that to be a, a reliable resource, and if you have enough of it, you can start determining patterns. You can start determining rules because if the u from two elides consistently, then that's not some careless pronunciation factor. That's a it's rule. It's not just sloppy speech. No, it becomes a rule. Right. It becomes the right. way it actually is. Right. Right. So let me give you a few more examples. Just and th- and we tease these out. Mm-hmm. We tease these out at sometimes great effort and and sometimes great emotion mm-hmm. <laughs> flying around. But um, like for example, uh, we consist. We notice that people consistently say uh, p, whereas in standard French it's p u i s. But we don't say in that condition. We don't say puis. And it's not that we can't say puis because on va chercher de l'eau dans le puits. It's not that that UI always, always, you know, combines to eliminate the U. Right. We say le puits for water well. Right. But we say P for, 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 for and, P, yeah. P, moi puis lui. 
Uh, et puis là, et puis là, il a été, you know, right? So it, it wasn't an accident. It wasn't, mispron- it wasn't a mispronunciation. It wasn't a lax. It wasn't an erosion. You know, it was the term. It was what the term really wanted to be. So how do you, how do you deal with that? Well, and admittedly, we, we allowed ourselves to some extent to use what can only be described as aesthetics <laughs> in a way. Cause you know, we decided to keep it an S on P. Right. Right. It, it was the, the, the standard term is P U I S. We say P, but we decided to keep an S on it to, to, to preserve some sort of visual connection. I don't know what it just made sense. Like for example, You never hear a, a Louisiana French speaker say je vais. It's always je vais, right? Je vais. Mm-hmm. I've noticed je suis. Yeah, je suis. Yeah. Or well, okay. mm-hmm. And so with je vais, uh, I'll get to je in a second. But okay. With je, <laughs> je vais, we decided to keep an S on it because you, it, there's no reason, there's no logical reason to put an S on it, right? But we decided to put an S on it because then you have je vais, tu vas, il va, S, S, nothing. As in je prends, tu prends, il prend, mm-hmm. it fits a pattern that's already there. Right. So we were, we were, we felt like we were crowbarring a change less, you know, aggressively. It maintains the history. It maintains. It maintains some some pattern that's already rec- already recognizable, and it also distinguishes between je va and Eva, if to whatever usefulness that is. Mm-hmm. So anyway, some of the stuff was aesthetic. Like shu, it's not that we can't say sui, because you, you would can say, say you can yeah, say sui. <laughs> yeah, you can say we and we say sui like uh, isui isui le char au village, uh-huh. isui le isui le cheval à pied, uh-huh. right? So it's not that we can't say that we say it easily and routinely, but not in that value. It's always shu. So it said, okay, well, if that's always what it is, then we have to honor that by creating a, a form that represents that honorably, you know, and, and faithfully. And so we came up with SUS. Why the S? Because it matches the pattern. You know? right. It matches the pattern. Right. So for what are, you know, some of the stuff, hardcore, pure, pure et dur linguists would have probably said, well, you don't need to put that S because It represents a creolization, and it va tu va va could be all va va va. But then, if you do that, you lose the s on tu va, and and that's going to freak out teachers and readers. Every <laughs> because here's the thing. Here's the thing. What we were looking, what we were working to find, was a way to represent the French we speak. In, in such a way that it would be teachable. Uh-huh. It would be readable by, you know, and somebody from France or Quebec or, or North Africa or wherever, uh, a, a reader, somebody who could read French, would pick this up and realize, oh, this is not what I'm used to seeing, but it's not hard to penetrate. I get it. Right, right, right. You know, it's, one, rec- it's easily recognized. Once you read two or three pages, okay, I see what they're doing. I'm good. Right. Like, for example, there's never a new. If you ever hear somebody right, from South Louisiana right. say ne, it's because he learned it in school. Okay, that's it, 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 On the territory, there was no ne. I had that quote from you. But but how useful is actually is the ne? 
Because when my father, it's not very useful no, no, at all. <laughs> when my father, when my father told me, "Fe pa sa," I knew what he didn't want me to do that, <laughs> and there was no "ne" in it. Right, right. You so, said mon français a ah ah not na a jamais su faire l'absence de Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, and and it it explains uh, you know creolization process simplification uh, uh, to a certain extent. Explain some of the some of the uh, features, like for example, face off et pas easy, right? Va va pas, prépare toi, prépare toi pas. It's not ne te prépare pas. You know, we don't do right. that. Right. So, but it makes it easier. And in fact, Louisiana French, as as we're discovering, it is uh, would be probably less frustrating for learners I of think French. So. Yeah, because I think so. Yeah. <clears throat> well, let me ask you this real quick. Um, before I move into these other questions, going back to the S on Java, would a would a Louisiana French speaker say Java aller or Java aller? No, Java aller. Java aller. Okay, so you really don't need it at all. And I can tell you, okay, it, it, if you hear that, if you hear a, a, what my one of my French professors from UL when I was at USL back in the day, uh, Jose Phillips, he used to call those the liaison mal à propos. <laughs> uh, <laughs> if you hear a liaison that we don't do, like pasta, tu veux venir pasta, you never hear pasasta. Okay. If you hear pasasta, that's somebody who's trying to imitate a Cajun. You learned it from school. And you... <laughs> so, so those little things—they're tiny. They're tiny, right? Right. But I could tell you how huge they are in reality because when. Uh, Belly's Out of the Cajun was filmed. Excellent movie, by the way. Yeah, well. I liked it. Yeah. I always did. It was simple, but yeah. I liked it. Uh, Belly, uh, what's her name? Uh, uh, Duval's wife uh, was playing Be uh, Alida, right? And uh, uh, at one point early in the movie, Belly's Out was trying to talk her to go into the Dance with him, and she said, "Pas à stud. And I thought, "Oh, there, I, she lost me." Oh, <laughs> I, it just broke. It it broke the spell. I mean, you know, no, that no actual Cajun from the 19th century would have said that. Right, right. <clears throat> well, let me ask you this. Um, I want to say this: the the Louisiana French situation between Louisiana French and what I I'll call continental French because standard French is I prefer continental to standard French. We've come up with all kinds of uh, descriptions for that, like impositional French. Uh, I like that one. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, I think it's actually, I think it's okay to call it standard French because it is a standard French. But you know, it's uh, not so much that we have to take that name away. We have to do is add ours. Right. You know, ours is a a variant. Also remember to check out the show notes at weeklylinguist.com. There you will find further information about this episode. Like more information about the guest, a selected bibliography, and any links mentioned in this episode. As the saying goes, if you enjoyed the podcast, tell a friend. If you didn't, tell us. You can tell a friend by rating us 5 stars on iTunes and by writing the glowing endorsement in the reviews. Don't forget to subscribe when you're done and follow us on Instagram or Twitter at Weekly Linguist. For any feedback, positive or criti critical, <laughs> write to us at podcast at weeklylinguist.com. Tell us what you think, what we can do better, or even suggest a topic. 
uh, a topic for an upcoming episode.